The Guardian. Hello, I'm Claire Armistead. Before we hear this week's podcast, we just wanted to point you in the direction of our sponsor, Squarespace. For more information on building beautiful websites, go to squarespace.com. And the winner of the 2015 Costa Book of the Year is... I've got a lot of respect for my younger readers. I think a lot of younger readers have no trouble dealing with dark themes, complexity, interesting and complex moral questions and inventive language. Hello and welcome to the Guardian Books podcast. This week we look at what makes a great book. The Costa Award sprung a big surprise on most of us by announcing the winner of its Book of the Year as... The Lie Tree by Francis Harding. But Frances Harding, though stunned by her own success, wasn't surprised that children's literature was having its day. And in her acceptance speech, had a thought for all of us. I'm now going to try to remember the speech that I was told to prepare, but which I knew I wasn't going to need. Um, thank you very much. Um, many thanks to the judges for giving the lie to what a lot of us were sagely muttering, which was, oh, well, the children's book never gets it. Um, I, I was one of those people. Um, it is a fantastic time to be writing children's fiction, YA fiction. Um, it's thoroughly exciting. And for those people who, who might be hearing this, who think that children's and YA fiction is not their thing, please do come and have an explore. There's a beautiful jungle out there. Thank you all very much. Meanwhile, our own Robert McCrum has been ruminating about the 100 most important non-fiction books written in English. Well, I think my flag again survived the last outing, so it's going to be back into the trenches again. But we start with the Costa Prize in what was a historic week for YA fiction. That's young adult for those of you unfamiliar with the term. Francis Harding's The Lie Tree... named Book of the Year is a glorious mashup of mystery, crime and ghost story set on a gothic island in the 19th century. She's only the second children's author to win the prize since 1971 when it was founded in its former incarnation as the Whitbread Prize. With me in the studio to discuss it were the Observer writer and critic Robert McCrum, the children's book reviewer Imogen Russell-Williams and down the line from Stockton in the north of England, Guardian children's books editor Julia Eccleshare. The Costas involve five different categories – fiction, first novel, children's fiction, biography and poetry. The only children's author ever to win it before is Philip Pullman for the final part of the His Dark Materials trilogy. I think it's pretty fair to say that nobody expected the lie tree to take the overall Book of the Year prize, so I began by asking Imogen if it was a surprise to her. Well, it was a very lovely surprise. I thought that if ever a book in the children's category was going to win, this one stood a really good chance because it's so literary. But no, I didn't really expect it to. Let's just hear a bit of it. The boat moved with a nauseous, relentless rhythm, like someone chewing on a rotten tooth. The islands, just visible through the mist, also looked like teeth, Faith decided. Not fine, clean Dover teeth, but jaded, broken teeth. 
jutting crookedly amid the wash of the choppy grey sea. The mailboat chugged its dogged way through the waves, greasing the sky with smoke. Osprey, said Faith, through chattering teeth, and pointed. Her six-year-old brother, Howard, twisted round, too slow to see the great bird as its pale body and dark-fringed wings vanished into the mist. Faith winced as he shifted his weight on her lap. At least he'd stopped demanding his nursemaid. Is that where we're going? Howard squinted at the ghostly islands ahead. Yes, Hal. Rain thudded against the thin wooden roof above their heads. The cold wind blew in from the deck, stinging Faith's face. In spite of the noise around her, Faith was sure that she could hear faint sounds coming from the crate on which she sat. Rasps of movement, breathy slithers of scale on scale. It pained Faith to think of her father's little Chinese snake inside, weak with the cold, coiling and uncoiling itself in panic with every tilt of the deck. Behind her, raised voices competed with the keening of the gulls and the fud, fud, fud of the boat's great paddles. Now that the rain was setting in, everybody on board was squabbling over the small sheltered area towards the stern. There was room for the passengers, but not for all of the trunks. Faith's mother, Myrtle, was doing her best to claim a large share for her family's luggage, with considerable success. Sneaking a quick glance over her shoulder, Faith saw Myrtle waving her arms like a conductor while two deckhands moved the sundly trunks and crates into place. Today Myrtle was waxen with tiredness and shrouded to the chin with shawls, but as usual she talked through and over everybody else, warm, bland and unabashed, with a pretty woman's faith in others' helpless chivalry. "'Thank you. There. Oh, right there. Oh, well, I am heartily sorry to hear that, but it cannot be helped. Oh, on its side, if you don't mind. Well, your case looks very durable to me. I am afraid my husband's papers and projects will not endure the weather, so... The Reverend Erasmus Sunderley, the renowned naturalist. Oh, how very kind. I am so glad that you do not mind.' Beyond her, round-faced Uncle Miles was napping in his seat, blithely and easily as a puppy on a rug. Faith's gaze slipped past him, to the tall, silent figure beyond. Faith's father in his black priestly coat, his broad-brimmed hat overshadowing his high brow and hooked nose. He always filled Faith with awe. Even now he stared out towards the grey horizons with his unyielding basilisk stare, distancing himself from the chilly downpour, the reek of bilge and coal smoke, and the ignominious arguing and jostling. Most weeks she saw more of him in the pulpit than she did in the house, so it was peculiar to look across and see him sitting there. Today she felt a prickle of pained sympathy. He was out of his element, a lion in a rain-lashed sideshow. On Myrtle's orders, Faith was sitting on the family's largest crate, to stop anybody dragging it out again. Usually she managed to fade into the background, since nobody had attention to spare for a fourteen-year-old girl with wooden features and a mud-brown plait. Now she winced under resentful glares, seared by all the embarrassment that Myrtle never felt. 
Myrtle's petite figure was positioned to impede anybody else trying to insert their own luggage under cover. A tall, broad man with a knuckly nose seemed about to push past her with his trunk, but she cut him short by turning to smile. Myrtle blinked twice, and her big blue eyes widened, taking on an earnest shine, as if she'd only just noticed the person before her with clarity. Despite her pink-nipped nose and weary pallor, her smile still managed to be sweet and confiding. "'Thank you for being so understanding,' she said. There was the tiniest, tired break in her voice. It was one of Myrtle's tricks for handling men, a little coquetry she summoned as easily and reflexively as opening her fan. Every time it worked, Faith's stomach twisted. It worked now. The gentleman flushed, gave a curt bow and withdrew, but Faith could see he was still carrying his resentment with him. In fact, Faith suspected that her family had antagonised nearly everybody on the boat. That was the opening chapter of The Lie Tree. Julia, if you were to be given that blind, would you know that it was Frances Harding? Yes, I think you would. I mean, when Frances came on to, into children's books with Fly By Night, her, her first novel, her style was very well formed already. She just writes in the most original way. Her writing is very embellished, but somehow also very precise. She uses words beautifully. She makes up words. And though I think um, The Lie Tree is less flowery, perhaps, than Fly By Night, I think you can tell it's by the same person. So she's what we would call a literary writer, isn't she? And there's, I know that this is a particularly contested term in children's literature as well as in adult literature. Well, she is a literary writer, and, and so was Philip Pullman, and so was David Armand when he won the um, Whitbread Award. Um, Did he win the Book of the Year no, Award? No, 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 he won his own category. But the, the major literary prizes, or the major, sorry, the major prizes, and particularly if they are um, part of, of the wider prizes pool, that's to say they're not just for children's books, are likely to choose the more literary novels. And that's a very good thing. They don't get enough uh, publicity in other places. They, they certainly don't get enough uh, publicity on bestseller lists. So I think this is one of the best things that prizes can do. Imogen, tell us a bit about the story of this book. Well, this book really does defy trying to synopsize it, I have to say. But it features Faith, who is 14 years old, who is the daughter of a clergyman and renowned natural scientist. And he has just run into a scandal. There is a mysterious cloud over his reputation. And so he and the family have decamped to the island of Vane. And they are there. They've been invited to participate in a dig. The scandal pursues them, and bit by bit, the matter becomes clouded. Um, Her father, Dr Erasmus Sunderley, um, is behaving very erratically, and then he dies under very suspicious and mysterious circumstances. And Faith throws off the constraints of being 14, of being female, of living at the time when she lives, in order to discover why and how he died. And part of looking into why he died is investigating what he was researching, which is a tree, a curious tree that he has found and obtained and brought from overseas that if you feed it a lie by whispering a lie to it and then you circulate that lie, the tree will bear a fruit and if you eat the fruit, it will reveal truths to you, but in a very bizarre way. Ooh, it sounds very exciting. Um, Julia, 
I know that it's said that children read aspirationally, so they read upward of their own age group. Now, Faith is 14. Does this mean that this is a book aimed at 11, 12, 13-year-olds? Yes, I think it is. I think any curious 11, 12-year-old would be fascinated by this. Um, It's actually a very empowering book. It's very much about recognising what women can do, what girls can do. And, you know, Faith is constrained by all the things of the time. But she shows that, you know, if you're curious and determined, you can find out the truth too. Yes, I think it's a, it's a wonderful adventure. I mean, it's a long novel. It's, in that sense, you know, a challenging read, but it's not a difficult read in the sense that it's, you know, mysteriously confusing. It's a very fine adventure story. I'm going to bring Robert in now. Robert, to, to my shame, I hadn't actually read The Lie Tree. And I was rooting, because I hadn't, I was rooting very strongly for Kate Atkinson's A God in Ruins, which was the novel of the year. Um, the bookie's favourite was Andrew Michael Hurley's The Loney, which was winner of the first novel category. It's quite confusing, prize if you're an outsider isn't it tell us a bit about it well it goes back as you said at the beginning to the whitbread prize and it is it invites the judges to compare apples and oranges and pears and bananas it's very difficult to compare a children's book with a book of poetry with a biography with an adult novel with a first novel and which is what they're invited to do it's very much a prize for bookshops and booksellers i think and this year was chaired by James Hennigy, who is a bookseller, was a bookseller. Who um, founded the, the Oticos yes, book yes. chain. And so I think its track record over the years has been pretty good. It's, this is only the second time that a children's book has won. I mean, Ted Hughes won, not for a children's book, it's true, but he won some years ago. For birthday letters. But, and for a translation. So you have writers who have written for children who have won it. And it's a prize which gets a lot of attention. And I think this prize, which sounds... Fascinating. I, I haven't read it, but it strikes me when I was listening to Imogen. There's a kind of Alice in Wonderland. She's clearly a strong character who's in quest of something. It evokes Alice in Wonderland-like comparisons in my in my head, although I haven't read a word of it. So it's clearly the judges have chosen well. Kate Atkinson was obviously the strong favourite, and Andrew Lenneville's strong favourite. But I think they're right to branch out and choose something a bit different. Julia, you were involved in earlier controversy over the Amber Spyglass, which was the book that Philip Pullman won. Well, I was very lucky because what had happened was that Philip took a stand, as a lot of children's authors did, about, I think I've got this right, but that originally the children's book wasn't included. There was the Beefeater Children's Book Award. It was separate. And Philip felt very strongly that to have a children's book award and then all these others, all these apples and pears being compared, but the banana not being allowed to join in was wrong. And children's books should be allowed to take part in, in this. And so he actually, the publication date of the Amber Spyglass was fixed to be outside of the year of jurisdiction for the Whitbread. So it was published on the very first day of the next year. And by then they had changed the rules. And so it was eligible, but it wasn't submitted because nobody had sort of thought about this. And so it had to be called in. And in a sense, the rest is history, as they say. So you were the woman who called it in and <laughs> well, made, made well, the name of well, that's his not, dark materials. Yeah, but I mean, that's only because everybody in children's books knew how wonderful Philip Bullman was. But I think for the adult book world, and if you remember on that evening, and I think, Robert, you were involved in this because... I was there, yes, I remember it very well. Yeah, because mm. I think it was you who was lined up to be on the TV and then got stood down because suddenly Philip Pullman was taking your place. And that was because nobody had expected that he was going to win. I've forgotten that. And everybody had thought it was going to be, and I can't now remember who the main contender was, but, you know, it was completely surprising and I think it was one of the most significant moments in you know one of the well one of the many significant moments in the last sort of 30 years of children's publishing because it showed the rest of the world how strong a children's book could be. But actually if I think back to that time there was a lot of talk about Philip's work 
before the prime I mean, he was very much in the air. Oh, yes, of course. I mean, it didn't come from nowhere, but I think it just sort of cemented the conversations. Mm, mm. And I'm interested in you saying the prize is really a book-selling prize, because, of course, I hadn't thought of that, but I think you're right, and therefore it made him so particularly beloved by booksellers, and that's, you know, that's a very strong way of them wanting to promote him. And if you look at the list, too, it's over the years, the winners have been of an exceptionally high standard. I mean, because some of these prizes go slightly off-piste sometimes, mm. but this is a good list. I think it's also interesting to think how poetry has never really pulled its weight if you look at the number of times it's been represented. I mean, going back to your point about how difficult it is to judge unlikes and how we therefore, I think, expect it to be the novel or the first novel that will win this prize. Or the biography. Or the biography, which have done very well. There's been a bit of a movement recently against awards, a bit of a grumbling and rumbling among authors against what Julian Barnes in the context of the book are called Posh Bingo. But it's not just Posh Bingo, no, is it? No. it is. Let's take the case of the Lightry. I mean, I quite freely admit, I'm sure Julie would accept this. I hadn't heard of her. And now I'm going to go and read the book and I'm going to talk about it and give it to my friends. And, and all of us are doing this. We want to read the book. And the prize has given her oxygen in a way that's really refreshing. That's why I think prizes are so important, because particularly if you're writing the kind of... David Armand won The Whitbread for Skellig, which was his first novel, and I happened to be sitting next to him, and it was one of the most electrifying moments, because you don't know, you really, really don't know you're going to win. And I think that was formative in the making of his career. The only downside, perhaps, is that sometimes an author can be shortlisted a great deal and always the bridesmaid and never the bride because Francis has actually been shortlisted for quite a lot of awards so far but hasn't hasn't won anything since the Branford Bows. And as you were saying, Robert, she hadn't registered on your radar before. So that perhaps is the only possible downside. But doesn't that just show that there is the upside? Because, yes, she has, and... Um, I was chair of the Branford Bows and we thought she what was... What is the Branford Bows? It's an award for somebody's first novel and the editor who helped them create it. It's a two-part award. But, I mean, it was. we noticed with Fly By Night that it was a truly remarkable book. And it was. I mean, again, it was one of those books that I think everybody... I sort of think everybody who read it at the time just knew that she was a, an exceptional talent and everybody expected her to go on and win one of the major awards. And, yes, it's taken her a, probably to her seemingly endless amount of time but that's why it's so wonderful that first she won the, for the children's book and now she's won this award too and i want to make one other point julie which i'm sure you'll agree with which is in our time in this business one has seen a shift away from the power of reviews to the power of the prize it's the prizes which create buzz now not the reviews oddly so this is a book which is aimed at at pre-teens and it is the book of the year Imogen, is it, you know, is this the book of the year? It's certainly a really strong contender for that title. I wouldn't actually say it's necessarily aimed at preteens. I think that's, as we said, it's aspirational. I think it's solidly aimed at, at teens and uh, and brave girls or, or indeed boys could have a pump when they're a bit younger. But yes, it's just so full of everything. And as Julia was saying, it is enormously empowering. And it looks also not at just what girls can go on to achieve and do and become if they are brave and curious and if they don't allow themselves to be constrained but it looks at the terrible things that women have to do when they are constrained Faith's mother has to do some really awful stuff and make a version of herself which is all simpering and giddy and trading on her good looks just in order to keep the family alive after her husband dies in suspicious circumstances so that's an an issue an intriguing thing to look at and to think about for anyone who enjoys fiction never mind whether they're you know 11 or 100 
We've had a lot of talk about the crossover novel, Juliet. Is this a crossover novel? Is this one that's going to break out like Philip Pullman's work has into the adult world? Well, I certainly think if, if nobody had told you it was a children's book, you wouldn't necessarily think it is one. I mean, yes, there's a there's a child character in it, but so there is an atonement. This is a history of scientific research in the 19th century. It's got all sorts of other things in it. So yes, I think it is a crossover book. But just picking up on your point about is it the book of the year, what's so good about this is this is just one of the, I mean, yes, this is the Whitbread book of the year, but what's nice is Costa. It's, sorry, Costa. This is the Costa book of the year. But what's so nice about it is that it's putting out there a book that isn't going to be on the bestseller list. She hasn't got celebrity status. Nobody's going to have necessarily heard of it in another way. That's really important. And there can be lots of other books of the year in other positions, you know, coming into the marketplace in other ways, chosen by other people. But I think for this book to win the book of the year shows, yes, I think it was a very, very good choice in itself. But I also think it's reflective of how many very good books there are in, in the children's book canon at the moment. I'd like to add to that also, whether it's the book of the year or what it sounds like, it's the voice of the year. It's a new voice and we should celebrate that, really. That's a really good point. Anyway, I'm going to leave that discussion there. Congratulations to Francis Harding and many thanks to all of you. The Lie Tree is published by Pan Macmillan. This Guardian podcast is supported by Squarespace. If you want to build a website, you have many options. But if you want to build it beautiful, there's only one. Squarespace gives you the power of world-class design, so you can do more than create a website. You can set yourself apart. See why some of the world's most influential people, brands, and businesses choose Squarespace. To start your free trial, visit squarespace.com guardian. And now for something completely different, as they say. Some of you might have followed Robert McCrum's 100 Best Novel series, which came to a triumphant and somewhat controversial climax late last year after running for 100 weeks on The Guardian Books website. It was the subject of two podcasts last year about inclusions and exclusions. Well, Robert is back, and this time he's looking at the 100 key non-fiction texts written in English. He introduced the series this week, and an invitation to readers to name the books they would include has solicited more than 400 suggestions and rising. They range from contributor Dencher's point that the problem with lists is that to be balanced it must contain samples from the sciences, arts and humanities, and I don't know if 100 is enough. He goes on to offer 20. I'm, I'm acutely aware of this. Robert, yeah, this is your problem. It's a real problem. I mean, one tries to have a balance of gender as well and a balance of nationality, although this, actually, this series is going to be only in English. American English and so forth, but in the English language. But it is hard. At least with fiction, you can say well, it's a novel. But this is this is genre busting. And it goes back. You know, the novel goes back to the 18th yes. century, basically. And this, what we what we've done with this list, and it, you know, it's a list, and it's got all all the problems of attaching to lists. I can see that quite freely. But my sort of subtitle for it is the hundred books which made us who we are. And so it's about the books which created the cultural and imaginative landscape in which we live. And the trick we've pulled this time, rather than start at the beginning, which you know, you're bound to start with Shakespeare and the King James Bible, that kind of stuff, we're going to go backwards from now. So we're going to start in 2014, and we're going to work our way into the 20th century, and then into the 19th, into the 18th, and so forth, and to see if we can find strands of thought and ideas and connections between contemporary writers and long-forgotten or semi-forgotten classics from the past. Who are you starting with? 
So I'm starting this week with Elizabeth Colbert, who's an American, actually journalist writer, who wrote a book called The Sixth Extinction, which is about the imminent destruction of the planet, according to her, which obviously is very topical. I mean, it ticks various boxes. It's very topical. It's about it's not about global warming as such, but it is about the, the crisis the planet's facing. It's by a woman writer, which is very important because I think the, pre- the previous list was criticised not having enough women in it. It throws into the more kind of apocalyptic vein, which which you can which I don't want to give anything away, but there are a number of titles which it throws back to. So it's, it hooks up with the past. It's very much of the present, but uh, there could be six other books. I mean, I, I, I was going to put in Sapiens by Noah Harari, and I left in the end. I dropped it because I realised it was a translation, and we aren't having any translations. So um, he's out. That is a big challenge for you, isn't it? it Somebody, is. one of the contributors said, but I, I'm including this partly because it just amused me. Said, um, "Oh, well, you should include the Quran, the Bible, and the Kama Sutra." To which yes. another one said, <laughs> "Well, they would qualify for fiction if it was a <laughs> list of novels." <laughs> yes. Well, so there's no Freud. There's no Marx, there's no Descartes, there's no one, you know, there are a number of great names which would be on your list or my list of any great books aren't going to be there. So it's, it's lim- it has its limitations. Do you feel that it's going to be geared towards the humanities? You're somebody I who comes so. from the humanities. I think so. It's, I'm going to have to try, I've got some sons. So I'm going to have um, the, the double helix. That's, ha- that's the, the story of the, story the of DNA, of the, uh, of DNA, DNA uh, um, by James Crick, Watson. Crick and, Crick and Watson. And I think I'm going to have Stephen Hawking's The Brief History of Time. I've got that in my draft. Have you list. actually read it? I read it when it came out, actually. Um, I didn't understand a word of it. But he's quite a good writer. And I think, again, it's something we, we, we should have. It. And I'm going to have Darwin, obviously, Origin of Species. But, you know, yes, there's going to be a bias towards the humanities because, after all, that, is the, that shapes the cultural and the social and, and um, aesthetic climate in which we operate. It's an interesting thing about um, how well science writers write. And there's that fantastic passage from the end of The Origin of Species about uh, all things most beautiful. It is interesting to contemplate an entangled bank, clothed with many plants of many kinds, with birds singing on the bushes, with various insects flitting about, and with worms crawling through the damp earth and to reflect that these elaborately constructed forms, so different from each other and dependent on each other in so complex a manner, have all been produced by laws acting around us. These laws, taken in the largest sense, being growth with reproduction, inheritance, which is almost implied by reproduction, variability from the indirect and direct action of the external conditions of life and from use and disuse, a ratio of increase so high as to lead to a struggle for life and, as a consequence, to natural selection, entailing divergence of character and the extinction of less improved forms. Thus, from the war of nature, from famine and death, the most exalted object which we are capable of conceiving, namely the production of the higher animals, directly follows. There is grandeur in this view of life, with its several powers having been originally breathed into a few forms or into one, and that whilst this planet has gone cycling on according to the fixed law of gravity, from so simple a beginning, endless forms most beautiful and most wonderful have been and are being evolved. I said, hey, babe, take a walk on the wild side. I said, hey, Joe, 
take a walk on the wild side. So you, you can actually get prose that is, that is worth revelling in Absolutely, just for itself, yes. quite Dar- apart from the thought. Darwin was a great writer. How much has that affected your judgments? I think I'm working, I've, I've got a draft list of, of about 100, and there's some obvious names in there, but also some not-so-obvious names. Um, but I think the quality of the prose is pretty important, although they've got, also got some real stinkers in as well who are very influential but barely readable. Are you going to be controversial? You were a little bit mm. deliberately controversial with your novel's choices, weren't you? Well, I you? think there's going, to be, there's, there's going to be some moments where people say, what on earth is this all about? You know, just to stir things up. Just to be a bit mischievous. Just to, just, yeah, exactly. Get people going. Also, because I think this is a subject about which everyone has an opinion. I mean, everyone's got their favourite three or four books, not necessarily fiction. And this is one of these moments where people can pitch in. Is your flak jacket in good condition? <laughs> well, I think my flak jacket survived the last outing, so it's going to be back into the trenches again. Well, thank you very much. That's something, certainly something to be getting on with for the new year. Robert McCrump's 100 best non-fiction books of all times will be unfolding over the next 100 weeks on the Guardian Books website. We hope to have you back, Robert, mm, on the podcast. To, to yeah, because the, the, the series is evolving and I have a draft list of the possible 100, but it, it, it's changing and each week I have, a, I have a kind of debate with myself as to whether it should be this or whether it should be. I mean, for example, another one, I, I didn't put in Sapiens and then I thought, should I put in The Tipping Point by Malcolm Gladwell? Again, very influential book in the early part of the century this century and then I thought actually it's a, a femoral bestseller really and it's not really influential it's quite influential in a narrow vein but not in the long term so I left it out well there's that weird historical foreshortening isn't there where things that seem incredibly important now might seem nothing in, in 50 years time well that brings it all nicely to an end Robert McCrum's 100 Best Non-Fiction Books of All Time will be unfolding over the next 100 weeks on the Guardian Books website. We hope to have him back on the podcast to discuss his selections along the way. Thanks to Robert, to Imogen Russell-Williams and Julia Eccleshare and congratulations again to Francis Harding. Next week we'll be celebrating National Libraries Day with Ali Smith, whose latest short story collection is very handily called The Public Library and Other Stories. If you have any of your own library stories you'd like to share on this podcast, do let me know on claire.armitstead at guardian.co.uk. And we have another big treat in store next week on video, the start of an epic series of Shakespeare solos, the greatest soliloquies performed by some of our greatest actors to mark the 400th anniversary of Shakespeare's death. Listen to this trailer and see how many you can name. From Monday, you'll be able to see if you were right by searching for Shakespeare solos on the Guardian website. For now, from me, Claire Armitstead, and my producer, Susanna Tresillian, farewell. Now is the winter of our discontent. Make glorious summer by this son of your rumble thy bellyful. The same progeny of evils comes from our debate. And have not we affections, desires for sport, and frailty as men have? If thou dost love, pronounce it faithfully. (sighs) She loves me, sure. Be sick, great greatness, and with thy ceremony give thee cure. And on my blade and dudgeon gouts of blood which was not so before. What will this fudge? That is the question. For more great downloads, go to theguardian.com slash audio.